On the Record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PwC on News Talk. I want to go back to some of the breaking news uh, that we brought to you just before the news at 12 o'clock, which is that Iran's so-called morality police has been effectively suspended, at least according to the country's chief public prosecutor. Um, Mohammad Jafar Montazeri has told the semi-official Iranian Labour News Agency um, that the unit is not the responsibility of the judiciary, but that the institution which oversees it had entered, ended its patrols uh, a little while ago. Uh, let's speak to Dr. Zara Glombavand, who is a research fellow at the School of Chemistry in Trinity College. but She's also from the Support for Iranian Freedom and Equality uh, group in Ireland. Um, Zara, thanks very much for taking your call this lunchtime. Uh, what do you make of this apparent declaration that the morality police has been suspended? Yeah, um, of course, um, Iranian regime now is lo- uh, under lots of pressure um, due to the, the cost that this protest um, had for them. So many people were killed. So they're nowadays under a lot of pressure. And also, um, like reading this news, created misconception of Islamic retreat and the forced compulsory hijab. But it is absolutely not. It just means that they won't recognize morality police as a force to conduct uh, to co- women to comply hijab. But it doesn't mean that they won't create other ways to control women. For example, like uh, uh, using cameras, uh, CCTV and AI to recognize women's face and then find them and then detain them. So that's one uh, one um, uh, of the ways that they, they, they could do it. And uh, um, on the other side, it may lead to another type of apartheid against women. For example, recently a woman without hijab went to a bank and they got uh, she got some like banking and, um, a job done and then they fired the manager of the bank because they said you should not provide services to a woman without a job. So it will be like uh, they won't let women without a job get driving license or get the ID card or this uh, or go to college. So they they don't force it by morality police, but they create an upper, another apartheid. Okay. And as you know, you have heard a lot. So fundamentally, um, Islamic Republic is funded on the hijab. And it's like a Berlin Wall. And if it collapses, they don't exist anymore. So they will be gone. And the last point is that it's not about hijab anymore. It's never been. It was just a, just a trigger. And as a, an Iranian, we have been uh, fighting for our freedom the past 43 years. We are against a theocratic apartheid regime. We don't want uh, this political system anymore. We want we want them gone and to create a, a, a true democracy for Iran. So, it, would it be your your argument then, Zara, that um, ultimately this doesn't change the rules? All it does is just chase the change the means by which the rules are enforced, and that Iran would still find some other way to make sure that the hijab is being worn to its exactly. Stipulations. Yeah. So, what morality police is? It's just a van, some vans with some women and men in them, taking women from the street taking them to, to some offices and trying to give them like lectures about the job and most of the time beat them and make them to sign a confession and they won't do that anymore and they release them. So this is so this system is gonna be is gonna be removed, but they will have other ways to do this. So it does it means that you won't see these lands on the street anymore. Uh, what sort of assurances do you think protesters would need then, Zara, before they'd be confident that their their protests have been successful, or that the 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 manner in which the um, the Iranian government approaches this would be changed forever? Unfortunately, there is no guarantee. We don't want such a guarantee because we are not 
fighting for these minor issues. We, are, we, we, all, we want a fundamental change. We want the, the regime change. We want um, a democracy. We, want, we don't want Islamic Republic as a system who runs the country. And we want like a, like a, 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 a system that works based on people's votes based on true democracy. So it's nothing like if they promise that there won't be forced hijab anymore, which they won't because that's the Berlin Wall. But, you know, um, nothing can make uh, people to go back to uh, their houses because uh, this is what we are fighting for. Okay. Uh, thanks very much for taking your call again this lunchtime. I really do appreciate you talking to us at short notice. That's Dr. Zara Golenvant, who is from the Support for Iranian Freedom and Equality Group in Ireland. She's a research fellow based at the School of Chemistry in Trinity College, Dublin. Um, let's move to somewhere else uh, in the Middle East. Let's check in with what's going on in Qatar, because, of course, we're now halfway through the World Cup, the round of 16 getting underway yesterday. And this day, two weeks, we'll have the World Cup final taking place in Lusail. Let's speak to Miguel Delaney, who's the chief football writer uh, for the London Independent. Uh, Miguel, uh, thanks very much for taking our call. Hope you're you're keeping well. I know it's a busy time for you over there. Um, before we talk about matters on the pitch, uh, now that you've been on the ground for a little over a fortnight, how has Qatar uh, met your expectations, both as a host, but also just as a society in the ways in which they're, they're dealing with the, the culture clash that you're seeing at the minute? Uh, I suppose I may as well be blunt about it. I can't think of a worse place to stage a World Cup. <laughs> wow. It's just, it's not... Tell us what you really yeah. think. <laughs> I mean, I've been to nine international tournaments now. And I think what really stands out about a World Cup is... I mean, one of its great virtues, or what, the ideal of what it should be, is kind of this great global party coming together. So, like, I mean, two two memories I have, say, from uh, Brazil 2014, even Russia 2018, in, in like Samara, one of the one of the cities a good bit away from Moscow. You kind of you find yourself in cafes or in airport lounges, and like so many, I've got so many memories of people from so many different countries, say, just crowded around an iPad or a screen, and all kind of watching a game together, and and that's kind of what it's about. There's None of that in Qatar. I mean, first of all, because of the expense of the place. Obviously, I suppose, because some of the uh, the political context as well. Very few fans have actually travelled. The, the best represented were from Latin America. I think Mexico had 90,000, so they were by far the biggest, wow. as well as Saudi Arabia. Argentina, the next after that, I think got about 30,000, 40,000. But after that, there's pretty much an immense drop. And the, like, the only place in the... Um, the only place in Doha where you get any sort of sense of a World Cup like that, like something I would compare to Copacabana Beach for the Brazilian World Cup, and where there was always hundreds of thousands mm. of fans there from everywhere. I mean, the, the, the souk in the middle of town, but even the souk, I mean, this is one thing about that comes across with Qatar as well, the artificiality of it all. So the souk is kind of put, put out as this, as it's kind of the one traditional place you have to go to. But that was rebuilt in the 1980s. And one of, one of the common lines is, you know, it looks like a universal set. And then, of course, I mean, there's no getting away from this either. You just, we are ultimately in an autocracy where the, the emir and the royal family have absolute power. And it, there is just that constant feeling of it, I, I, even the way, so like little, little small things that I've noticed. I mean, and, well, and first of all, this is actually worth stressing, of course. In terms of the global party, so, so many LGBTQ groups have refused to come. Mm. Then the, the, the other big controversy in this World Cup as well is over migrant workers and I mean the way I would liken it of being on the ground here it's what you would imagine essentially the deep south in America to be like in that you've got this entire underclass of people who are basically just taken for granted uh, they're everywhere they make everything run but it feels like they're invisible to everyone else and, and even the way they're spoken to 
uh, one of the actually most unsettling things is, say, if you like, I'm, I'm actually in the uh, the main media center now, and there's a, there's a, there's a big uh, media cafe and that sort of thing. But if you if you went to ask for something, it's the kind of this ob- obsequious attentiveness of the workers, and it, that comes from a culture where if they are out of line in any way, or if they if they show any sort of dissent or anything, well, they're often under threat of, of deportation. So I I had a moment there last week where a taxi driver dropped me off at the wrong place outside the media center because they're very strict on where you have to go mm. and where where you can go. And I like I was in a bit of a rush, had work to do. I jumped out of the car, and then I had this you know official some some busybody coming over to me. And he's like basically tell me, yeah, you have to get back in the car and go around. I said, no, I'm walking through. And he took my photo as if, and as if some kind of threat, as if he'd report me to something. Now I know it's a very small thing, but it's almost indicative of that kind of culture. Mm. And 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 again, of course, one of, one of the running themes throughout this World Cup has been the official version of events as put out by Qatar and to a certain degree FIFA, and how those official events have been so often challenged. I mean, the attendance has been one thing. The issue over. Um, rainbow items going to grounds and and again it just reflects something else about this country that it's a it's a royal family that aren't used to having their events and things questioned and it, again it's we, this i think there's been a little bit of a kind of shift here in the last few days where you see a lot of kind of people that have been here for two or three weeks and are talking well actually they they treat us well it's 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 quite so safe well of course it's going to be nice for kind of wealthy westerners mm. um yeah they, they, but, they, they treat you well depending we're, 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 on where you're coming yeah. from or how much money you've yeah. got to spend there yeah, we're in, and, all the, and we can't get it. We can't. We shouldn't escape from this. We, the World Cup shouldn't be held in a, somewhere. First, there's a wall that's built on modern slavery, as every human rights group say. And secondly, one without democracy or without a free press. Um, which I suppose then you've uh, the other argument that I was going to put to you, was, which I've heard other members of the media advance, is that at least there's something to be said for basically having the entire World Cup in one state, in one city, or close to it. Because you know, as someone who's covered a multitude of different tournaments, particularly the last one, the Euros having taken place across the continent, is there any kind of upside or some positive learnings for future hosts that maybe there's something to be said for having them all in, in close uh, quarters to each other? Well, so the only thing about that is, and like after a few initial teething problems in that sense, it has run quite smoothly from from that from that perspective, and you can kind of get across the city fairly handily. The metro is gleaming as you'd expect, and and I, it should be pointed out as well. I mean, to have the World Cup in in the Middle East, in in the Arab world, in a predominantly Muslim country, is is a good thing. Like mm. that that w- that would be ennobling. But I, I just with Qatar specifically, uh, I I don't think it's worth the price. Um. But so I mean that 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 is one yeah. semi-positive element, I say, but one with significant caveats. And yeah, the uh, the the only thing about kind of the size of the city or the ability to kind of host it in one city like that. I mean, I think there's very few actually. It would mean the only locations that could stage a World Cup then would all be kind of these alpha mega cities like New York or London, yeah, maybe Buenos Aires. Um, but like it theoretically works well, and I, yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, the next World Cup is going to be so different in the USA with its, with its own issues. But that's, I mean, the the environmental cost of that World Cup is going to be so, well, there's going to be so many flights across it, essentially. Yeah. I was going to say it's going to be worse than air, but it's not. Yeah, well, of course. And we, we don't, cost is uh, and we don't know how many um, how many games is going to be in that tournament either, so we don't know how much jet setting there'll have to be for different participants and whatnot. Um, on the pitch, um, there's a bit, obviously, we're getting into the, you know, the, the real business end of it now because the first knockout games took place yesterday. Netherlands and Argentina will meet in the first quarter final. Um, I'm looking at, though, the bookies' odds, and I see that Brazil are now very short odds uh, favourites to win the tournament outright. And I'm sort of wondering what you can base that on, considering that they, granted not their first choice 11, um, lost to Cameroon, and that they kind of laboured to, to victories over Serbia and Switzerland. They're not exactly setting the world alight. So I kind of wonder, what, why are they favourites? Is it just because of their draw? 
I, I think there's a few elements. I mean, I must. I, I think the Cameroon game you can kind of dismiss a little bit because they were already top of the group with six points. They, they were never going to be 100. percent It was a little bit like Spain and Japan. Although Spain kind of were actually in much more danger and got very complacent. Uh, I have. I mean, laboured. I suppose it, it's. I'm not sure. I completely agree with that. I thought okay. that they in the, in the first. I was at their first game against Serbia, and like Serbia, their, their sole interest in that game was to basically sit deep and frustrate Brazil, which is pretty much all they could do. And I thought Brazil were really impressive in how patient they were and then how they opened them up. Uh, and that's the one thing about Brazil. I think that's one reason they're, they're so favoured, because I think other than England, they probably... And in fact, they've got more attacking options in England, though Gabriel Jesus is now injured. Mm-hmm. I think that's one big... They've got so many weapons. And even I was talking to someone close to Brazilian camp last week, and they said, like, four years ago, it would have been a crisis if Neymar was injured. Whereas now, it, it's basically something they can weather. And the other side of that, I mean... I would agree that they don't, they don't kind of sparkle in the same way some other sides have. But that's because they're essentially just such a thorough team. I think they're, like, they could well go throughout this World Cup with, with that Cameroon goal, which is essentially in a dead rubber for them, yeah. being the only one they can see. I, mean, I, I think that's a big part of it. Okay. They're so defensively strong. Uh, in 60 seconds that we've got then left, Miguel, anyone else that stands out for you as a real prospect? I know that that's a, how long is a piece of string, but I mean, there's so many other quality uh, options. Anyone that's jumped out for you as a real contender? French with Mbappe. Uh, um, Spain, I thought, actually put in the best display. Uh, I think they've got the best idea of football, but I think they're, they're, it's a tournament too early and they're a bit too young, as we've seen in some of their flaws. England, people mightn't like to hear it, but I think they're up there, one of the top four. They've got, mm-hmm. They won't concede many either, and they've got such attacking options. And then I was at the Argentina game last night. I've been at all their games so far. All their games are an event and experience. Yeah. And they've got Messi, who are, they're, they're not very good at Argentina. But they have this kind of dogged momentum. Yeah. Uh, what was it like seeing yeah. that, that second goal yesterday in the flesh where the, just a guy just single-handedly decided that he wanted to pull them over the line? <laughs> I mean, that, yeah, it was, uh, it was absolutely remarkable. Uh, and like, this is, uh, you, could, you could see with Messi as well. He, he actually had a poor game until uh, the Australian player Behic uh, had, um, had kind of got into a little bit of a tangle with him. And after that, like, we were talking to the Argentinian players in the mix zone afterwards. And they were talking, but they knew immediately well, that bring, the words they use were that'll bring out the fire inside and Messi. And, and so we saw. <laughs> and so we saw. Uh, Miguel Delaney, thanks for talking to us this lunchtime from Qatar. Miguel Delaney, Chief Football Writer with the London Independent. On the record with Gavin Riley. Brought to you by PWC. Sunday morning at 11. On News Talk.